Welcome in. This is Chit Chat Money, and it is Tuesday, June 29th. Uh, if you're wondering why it's me, Brett, talking on the introduction, it's because we have Ryan remote. He is in headphones and across a Zoom call, so his audio quality might not be as good today. But Ryan, how are you doing? Are you ready to get to our interview with Max Chatsko? Yeah, good. I'm doing great. The interview with Max was a lot of fun because he understands all the areas of the market that I have no understanding for. So it's always good to have those kind of interviews. And then we actually have some more fun segments. I'll be talking about the Peter Thiel drama uh, after the interview. What about yep. you? And then I got, or what else do you have? Uh, I got, there's, there was an interesting thread on Twitter that I'll talk about. There's 50 companies with over a 20% uh, rate of return over the last 15 years. So I'm going to talk about those sort of what drove them and any shockers, I guess, in there. All right. And then I have some SPAC and IPO, I would say excess, maybe not ridiculousness, but it feels like February again. And then I got a fun new segment called Taking Stock. Little, uh, don't want to spoil that, but that should be really fun. But I guess we should talk about our sponsors now, Seven Investing, in conjunction with our interview with Max, who works at Seven Investing as well. So if you want, I mean, I don't know how to describe it. He knows clean energy and biotech like the back of his hand. His expertise, you can hear it in the interview. We learned so much about the industry and it kind of makes me realize that I cannot be investing in clean energy or the energy sector in general on my own right now. And his research that he's putting out on 7investing.com can really help out. So if you use our promo code CCM, you can get $10 off your first month introduced to the service. Prices are going up really soon. So go in now. If you've ever been thinking about it, the time is now to strike Picks are coming out in two, three days now. Did I miss anything, Ryan? No, I think that's it. All right, let's get to our interview with Max. Uh, here you go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Today, we're welcomed by Max Chatsko, lead advisor at Seven Investing. He's been on the show before, uh, and you guys are all familiar with Seven Investing. But the goal today, we wanted to talk about clean energy, and I would give I would call Max an expert in the area. So uh, he hopefully has the answer to a lot of our questions. Uh, but before we get into it, I kind of want, and I think we maybe asked this before, but. I wanted to get sort of your background uh, and I guess why you chose the world of investing because you're, if I remember correctly, your uh, education was not finance oriented. Yeah. Well, hey, first of all, thanks for uh, having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, big fan of you. Um, yeah, so my background uh, is in engineering. So um, I have a degree in bioprocess engineering. So that's in scaling up fermentation like beer and wine and vaccines and all kinds of fun stuff, cell culture. Um, and then I have another degree in uh, materials science and engineering, and I kind of focus more on, well, I focused on both uh, the biology side of things, so like tissue engineering applications, and then also in energy storage. Uh, so I have a foot in kind of like two very interesting parts of the stock market, right? I have uh, biology and then uh, you know, the energy markets as well. Um, and yeah, so how did I get into investing? Uh, man, I fell into it in college, which I think will resonate with you guys, right? 
And uh, obviously, I didn't intend to go into finance uh, as my career, but uh, I just kind of fell into it that way. You know, I started uh, writing about stocks and uh, learning about it that way and, and building frameworks and learning how to invest. I made a ton of mistakes, by the way, in the beginning. Um, and now, you know, I get to do this for a living. So I get to, uh, I bring up my own, you know, like a technical understanding to a lot of the businesses I cover, uh, which I think is, you know, a little bit more unique than uh, some other analysts out there. So uh, hopefully that's what I'm bringing to the table. <laughs> Yeah. And we're talking clean energy today, but we're going to have to get you back on sometime in the future and talk biotech because I'm sure a lot of listeners have questions. They want to learn about that industry, but you work at seven investing, which is one of our partners. Everyone who's listened to before probably has heard us uh, spew on about seven investing because we love it so much, but how are things going at seven investing? And then what is your role there right now? Uh, things are going great. Um, you know, it's, oh, I don't know when we launched March, 2020. So uh, we've been in business for like, uh, less than a year and a half, I guess. Right. And, uh, it's great. We have a great team. So we have the full seven analysts now, uh, each with different, uh, domains of competence, different parts of the stock market, well-rounded team, each has really good experience in each of the markets they cover. Um, and you know, we're a small company, uh, so everybody wears a lot of hats. We're doing, we're really busy all the time, but, uh, it's really great. It's really great to see, you know, the engagement we have too with, uh, with investors and with our members. So, uh, things are going absolutely well. All right. And then we're going to hit clean energy today, like we said before. So let's kick things off. I mean, what is the state of the clean energy industry right now? What are the big trends, stuff like that? Yeah. So, um, you know, clean energy is one of these terms and it's kind of like genomics, right? It kind of means everything and it means nothing at the same time. Um, so I think if we want to drill down one more layer, uh, what is clean energy? And there's, there's different uh, ways to organize it in different industries that that touches. Um, so I'm going to shamelessly copy an analogy from uh, Drew Endy. I did a podcast with him on synthetic biology, but he talked about grouping things into joules, bits, and atoms. So joules, J-O-U-L-E-S, would be energy. Bits would be information, software, things like that, right? And atoms is the physical stuff. Uh, so we think about clean energy in, that, in those three buckets, uh, then we can kind of see the opportunities a little more clearly, right? So you have things like the power sector, so that's selling electricity. Uh, so that would be the jewels, quite literally the jewels, right? Uh, for the whole economy. Um, and then you have atoms, different types of atoms, right? So we have uh, electric vehicles, that's transportation markets. It's a very large market, obviously. Uh, and then you also have things like solar panels or wind turbines, um, materials production. So maybe lithium or other materials that go into batteries, right? Rare earth metals that go into turbines, things like that. We don't have so much of that in the United States, of course, but maybe well, that will change over the next decade as we... Uh, onshore some of our strategic supply chains and invest in those more carefully. And then there's software, which is a kind of a newer area, right? But there's a lot of interesting companies using maybe artificial intelligence or selling software services and subscriptions uh, for, for customers that have to manage, you know, uh, on-site energy production, or uh, maybe eventually there'll be app stores for electric vehicles, right? There's going to be more uh, software opportunities in, in all of these. So, um, Jules, Bits, and Atoms, I think, is a good way to, to kind of organize uh, the clean energy, um, you know, opportunities broadly. In terms of where we're at, I mean, we're in the middle of the, at the very beginning, I should say, uh, of the energy transition. So that is, you know, transitioning from uh, a power sector that's mostly dominated by uh, fossil fuels. So things like natural gas-fired power plants and coal-fired power plants and transitioning that to cleaner power sources which would be, you know, onshore wind, utility scale solar, uh, and small scale solar as well. So things like, you know, solar panels on the top of Walmart or your own house, right? Things like that. Uh, and eventually that will open up opportunities as well. 
in transportation, again, moving transportation from you know, liquid fuels to electric fuels, uh, which would be much cleaner uh, all the way around. So you can see why there's a lot of excitement, right? There's a ton of growth ahead. These markets are established. Um, we know the economics are there and will get better over time with more investment and more competition. So uh, uh, you, can, you can see why a lot of investors are really excited about clean energy opportunities. Which of those, uh, which of those clean energy areas do you find the most exciting or do you think has the most potential? And then I guess on the flip side, which of those do you feel might be overhyped? Yeah, so right now in the market, uh, it's a little too easy, right? Everything kind of goes up almost, it seems. I would say um, the most established uh, and obvious opportunities right now, maybe like the quote safest, uh, would be, you know, electric utilities. Um, you know, they are slower growing, obviously, but they're guaranteed growth because of how the industry works and they're highly regulated. Um, so they do sell at a premium, but you know, they're going to grow over time. And those in the best regions in the United States are going to, if they execute, uh, almost certainly beat the S&P 500 over time. So the companies that are managing the energy transition well have access to great um you know, geographic potential, access to great like solar and onshore wind potential, right? Um, and that's different by different region. Um, so we think about like, you know, in the Southeast, for example, uh, not any, like zero uh, onshore wind potential. Uh, so we've seen them, like there's no turbines in like an 11 state uh, grouping there from like Florida all the way up to, to like Tennessee and North Carolina, South Carolina, and over to maybe like, uh, Mississippi or so, no wind turbines at all in that whole group of states. Um, now, if you go to you know West Texas and just go straight up all the way to North Dakota and maybe even a little bit uh, further east to um, you know all the way to Illinois, uh, that's the American Wind Corridor. So that's some of the best onshore wind potential in the entire planet. Uh, so that's where most of the country's wind potential is based. Um, so you can see like electric utilities that are operating there are going to have much better opportunities and can move much more quickly. Uh, to, you know, cleaner energy sources. And obviously, I mean, solar is an obvious example. I think most people can understand, right? Uh, if you build that in the desert, like a 100 megawatt solar farm in the desert, you're going to do, be doing pretty well, right? In Arizona, New Mexico. But if I design that exact same 100 megawatt solar plant and put it in upstate New York, it's going to operate a lot differently. You're going to have a lot of different economics. It's going to have different energy output. Um, so I think that's a good way to to visualize that, you know, uh, renewable energy potential is really dictated by geography. And then you also have to take into account the demographics of the different regions, right? The Southeast actually has really good demographics, uh, younger, uh, faster growing populations, some major population centers as well, like Atlanta is one of the, you know, fastest growing metropolitan areas. Um, conversely, if you go to like New England, that's the oldest part of the country. So slower growth, um, there is more economic ac opportunity or activity, I should say, um, but also, you know, constrained by more limited renewable energy potential. Uh, it's harder to get solar there. It's harder to get onshore wind. Um, so I think eventually we'll see like the coastal regions transition to, you know, offshore wind opportunities. That's going to come in the later 2020s. And then the 2030s, it should go gangbusters. We have a lot of potential here in the United States, uh, even though we're behind maybe other parts of the world, like uh, Europe or some parts of Asia in terms of our offshore wind industry, but that has the advantage of uh, they can operate actually with the same efficiency in terms of uh, 
how much energy they produce compared to their capacity. It's called the utilization rate or the capacity factor. Uh, so an offshore wind farm can operate almost, uh, you know, can actually beat like a coal fired power plant or a natural gas fired power plant. The winds are stronger offshore uh, for most of the year. Um, and obviously uh, in the United States, most of our population centers are on the coasts, right? Uh, a lot of major cities are there, metropolitan areas. So if we can get offshore wind cranking and rolling, um, you know, that's going to ha have a big, uh, you know, that's going to be a, a source of a lot of progress in the energy transition because uh, we would immediately offset like a lot of energy use for where most people and activity uh, occurs. So electric utilities are, you know, one of the safer bets. It's uh, easier to kind of see, you know, 10 years into the future, 15 years into the future for how they're going to navigate the energy transition. And you can also see which companies in electric utilities are, are not well positioned, right? Maybe it's by different region. Maybe they're straddled with debt. Maybe regulators in their regions are, are slower moving to uh, uh, encourage and adopt renewable energy. Uh, so that would be electric utilities. And then, of course, I think what everyone's really excited about is all these other opportunities, right? You have battery makers and new electric vehicle startups and uh, uh, maybe even some software companies, right, that are kind of playing in, in both of those areas. And a lot of these companies have gone public recently through SPACs. So um, it's a lot easier to kind of, you know, hype yourself up with a SPAC than if you went through the traditional IPO route, because there's different SEC filing requirements between a SPAC and an IPO. Um, you know, a lot of SPACs, I don't even think if they're filing S1 filing, that's really that detailed. So uh, I've, I've personally stayed away from SPACs. Um, cause really like, what, what do we have, right? We have, uh, companies issuing investor presentations and they're just like, yeah, we're going to have $10 billion in revenue in three weeks. Don't worry about it. It's all going to work out. And that sounds really good. And I think, you know, uh, just in the market we're in right now, um, investors have responded well to that, even if maybe they don't understand, uh, the challenges and limitations to those business models. Um, so yeah, I think you have to be careful. And again, a lot of those opportunities are, still very nascent, um, you know, energy storage is going to be a major market opportunity, but uh, it's hard to identify who's going to be the winners there, um, you know, other than like Tesla, obviously, which is already kind of dominating the market from uh, its energy business. Uh, but the smaller players, you know, they'll have a role, but it's, it's still kind of tough to see how that happens. We still need, um, you know, a little bit more penetration from like solar energy, I think. Um, for small-scale solar installations in order to make batteries really kind of viable. Um, it still doesn't make sense residential uh, for residential customers. If I was going to buy a Powerwall, I don't think I would actually make any money. I would just get to brag to my friends that I own a Powerwall, right? Uh, <laughs> so it doesn't make good economic sense necessarily. Um, but yeah, there's definitely opportunities there. Um, and then again, with the software, that, that needs all those other things to happen. And you have to consider like the regulatory uh, limitations as well. Again, you know, these things are regulated by region for the most part. Um, and some regions and states are, are you know, more willing to uh, uh, have a vision for the future than others. Um, and a lot of times these are decided by like a five person board. So it's not really, uh, it can be very slow and frustrating, I think. But um, so you have to understand like the limitations there, you know, market and non-market uh, opportunities and the challenges. Um, but, uh, but yeah, those are the things people are most excited about. I have a bunch of follow-ups because this is yeah, an area I know very little about. But uh, If so I'm ranting on too, like just interrupt me. So uh, No, no that, was, that, was a, that was a great overview. All right. You mentioned like 
uh, I guess, solar, uh, solar, just putting solar panels in the desert. Um, and maybe this is sort of a naive question, but why, what's stopping someone from just building a massive solar plant in a desert? Is it just like the capital intensity to do it? And there's also, what about the energy? Is there some, there are limits on the energy transportation. You can't just put up a big like electric line, right? And get it everywhere. Is that a problem too? Yeah, that's a good question. This gets to one of the biggest bottlenecks right now for renewable energy. So when we were first building onshore wind, uh, which was really like the first source of renewable energy that that uh, made a lot of sense and made like a, a, a big chunk of the country's energy mix, you know, it was like the 2000s, right? And early 2010s. So we built a ton of wind farms and then like in Texas is a good example, built a lot of wind farms in West Texas and there wasn't any transmission infrastructure to get the energy produced to where it needed to be consumed, which is the population centers, which are on the other side of Texas. Um, so it's easy to forget, like, you know, um, I mean, you guys are old enough. Like, I mean, we grew up, the, the grid was dominated by like coal, natural gas, nuclear, but all of those power assets were built decades ago. Um, and we just built the transmission infrastructure to the coal fired power plant to get to the population centers. And then we, you know, um, it was kind of like not a whole lot of investment necessarily in, in newer power plants. So when we're building a wind farm or a solar farm, again, it's dictated by geography. So we can't just say, hey, the city of Houston, we're going to put a big wind farm there. If there's no wind potential, then that's not going to work. That's not going to make economic sense. So you have to erect and build these power plants for renewable energy uh, where the geography dictates. And then you have to go and build the transmission lines to get the energy out. Uh, so this is like completely new infrastructure all the way around. And a lot of times uh, that is lagging in certain parts of the country. And it also is also shifting like where energy is produced. If you have a thermal power plant, we can just, you know, if I build a nuclear power plant in New Mexico and I design that exact same facility and put it in Maine, it's going to operate exactly the same because I have complete control over all the processes. But that doesn't work for solar or for wind, right? Obviously. Um so where the most wind potential uh, is in the United States is not where all the population lives. So we also have to make transmission lines, that, like high voltage transmission lines that are going to get like hundreds of miles away to where the population centers are located. Um, so transmission is a huge bottleneck. And right now, actually, in Congress, they're thinking about um, providing a production tax credit, or I'm sorry, an investment tax credit, an ITC for transmission lines. So we've had like the production tax credit and the investment tax credit for wind and solar respectively. And that's been hugely successful in catalyzing uh, investments in renewable energy projects. But now I think there's a realization that if we're gonna keep this thing rolling, we do need to support transmission projects because we need to accelerate uh, the build out of these things. Uh, so if we can have a, a tax credit for transmission lines, that'll encourage more investment um, and, uh, you know, make it easier to, to build those things as well, make more projects economically viable. And then, you know, years from now, we can actually build even more wind and solar. So it's kind of, you know, we got to do uh, wind, you know, you got to invest in the power assets and then you got to invest in transmission. Then you got to invest in more power assets and then more transmission. Uh, so that is a big limitation there uh, for at least, you know, the power sector. But I think there's a, a realization that it's uh, something that needs to happen. And again, why can't we just build a big solar facility in the desert? Um, well, there's environmental concerns. I know it seems like it's just a desert, but there is a, those are ecologically active areas. 
Uh, so there's sensitive wildlife there, some, a lot of protected species. Um, and out West, I mean, a lot of that is actually federally owned land. So it's um, mostly like, uh, you know, state and national parks. Sometimes it's harder to get building permits out in the deserts. And also as much as people support renewable energy, they don't want it, you know, necessarily next to their house. Um, you know, nobody wants to live next to a giant wind turbine or uh, a big solar farm that spreads for miles and miles. That kind of ruins your view. Same for transmission, actually, right? There's a lot of obstacles to, you can't just build a big transmission line that goes right through the center of a lot of towns or farms or things like that, right? Um, so these are all things that are kind of uh, have to be navigated here. But, um, you know, I think the overall conclusion, like the energy transition is well underway. Uh, it's really just a matter of how quickly it, it happens now. So two areas that I think people talk about having a ton of promise are, you know, nuclear and geothermal. But it seems like the applications haven't really come through yet, uh, or I guess nuclear was, and now it's kind of fallen off. So what what's holding back nuclear? Is it more of a political thing? And then what's stopping you know geothermal from taking um, taking some market share too? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we've kind of screwed up ourselves with uh, with the nuclear industry, right? Um, I think that was after like Three Mile Island in the seventies. The United States just kind of stopped investing in nuclear power. So all the nuclear power plants we have, well, I mean, there's a new one out uh, in the Southeast, right? Um, but most of the reactors are decades old. Like um, I think we're talking about having licenses renewed now, maybe up to a hundred years. And that's actually pretty safe because we there's a lot of maintenance that occurs for nuclear power plants. So that does seem feasible if we want to do it. Um, but there's definitely not a much willingness to uh, start building new nuclear powered plants, right? In most parts of the country, a lot of places are actually shutting them down. Um, here in Pennsylvania, where I live, um, you know, they didn't want to, uh, the state didn't want to provide any financial help for some of our reactors on the state level. So some of those are shutting down. Uh, Illinois is encountering the same issue now. And it's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, uh, Pennsylvania and Illinois actually generated like close to 50% of all their electricity from nuclear power. It's a lot of jobs. It's a big part of the tax revenue base. And for them to, for the States to like not try to support it is actually kind of uh, insane to me. Um, at least here in Pennsylvania, we have more natural gas than most countries. So we'll be okay. Illinois has a lot of wind, uh, but the problem of course, you know, uh, nuclear power is the most efficient energy source we have. Um, so, when we t turn off one power plant, one nuclear power plant, uh, that's a lot more, we're going backwards, right? That's a lot of zero carbon energy we're taking off the grid. It takes a lot of solar or wind to uh, bring, you know, replace that. Can you explain uh, what like nuclear and geothermal energy is? I guess I'm kind of a novice, so just kind of the basics of it. Oh man! Uh, well, the basics that that'll take for nuclear. That's a that's a whole <laughs> seminar. <laughs> oh, is that tough? I'm not an expert either, but uh, you know, yeah. so nuclear power is just a fission process. So it's a contained reaction there, um, and we're just okay. making uh, steam. So we're trying to get a lot of heat out of those reactions and make steam, and then steam spins turbines, and that's how we generate electricity. So it's a clean energy source, but it's just like natural gas, and uh, and coal where we're trying to make steam. I guess there's some natural gas facilities that don't necessarily make steam, but uh, so we're trying to spin turbines though and make electricity, right? Um, geothermal is obviously you're using uh, some of the natural uh, 
uh, heat and, and uh, geology uh, provided in that region. Uh, it's just you're sending water down and getting it, when it comes back up, it's steam, right? So that's kind of a controlled process, but that's more uh, uh, obviously dictated by geography. So nuclear power right now is about 20% of the country's total energy use. Uh, geothermal is much smaller. I think it's, it's 0.8% or uh, maybe it's 1.8%. I don't remember the exact number, but it's a very small number because it's limited by geography. Now, I think it's going to change in the future, but with two different technologies for each nuclear and geothermal. So right now, I think in this decade, we're going to have a rapid rollout of um, wind and uh, utility scale solar. So hold on, I have a graph here somewhere. So there's some estimates here um, where, you know, from 2023 to 2030, the United States is going to add between 12 gigawatts and 15 gigawatts of wind every year uh, for the eight year period. And in that same eight year period, we're going to add 18 gigawatts to 20 gigawatts of solar. So these are by far grabbing almost all of the investment in new power sources, right? So this decade is just going to be, let's build as much wind and utility scale solar as we can. And by 2030, I think it's actually possible that, uh, utility scale solar and onshore wind are generating between like 30 and 40% of the country's total electricity. So that's up from maybe, you know, around 10 or 11% today. So that's a huge increase uh, in a very short amount of time. And I know that sounds frustratingly low, right? 30 to 40% by 2030. Um, but the, the United States is a huge country with a lot of energy consumption. Uh, transitions like this never happen. They've never happened before this quickly. Uh, so this really is, um, we're already doing like quite a bit of investment and, and making a lot of progress. Uh, so I think we have to acknowledge that progress. Now it's going to get trickier, um, you know, in the 2030s onward, because, um, you know, coal is going to be on its way out. We're not going to use a lot of coal uh, 10 years from now, and, and we'll have a path to retire all of those facilities. And that's good from a climate perspective, because that's the dirtiest power source. Natural gas is going to be a lot stickier. Um, you know, a lot of those facilities are newer. The economics are better for the most part. And we have a lot of natural gas as a country. Uh, so natural gas prices, if we wanted to, could always be pretty low. But, you know, getting rid of those is going to require more than onshore wind and utility scale solar. And this comes back to the nuclear and geothermal question. Um, so there's some newer advanced nuclear designs that are uh, being studied and actually supported by the Department of Energy. Uh, so these advanced nuclear designs are smaller reactors. So they're called small modular reactors, SMRs. And, um, you know, we still have to work out a lot of the technical uh, uh, details of these, but we're actually making a ton of progress. And the DOE is supporting uh, two different demonstration scale facilities. So that's the step right before commercial rollout and making this commercially viable. And they've targeted, you know, 2030, maybe the early 2030s uh, for having those projects completed. So a small modular reactor has a lot of advantages, right? They have different designs. So they use completely different um, technical processes than existing nuclear reactors. So some of the cool features is they can burn different fuels so they can uh, be cheaper. There's actually a design from the joint venture of General Electric and Hitachi. It's called GE Hitachi. And they have a design called the PRISM reactor. And it's a fast breeder reactor, which means it can actually consume use nuclear fuels so it can consume nuclear wastes and make electricity from that. Uh, I think that's actually on the back burner right now 
Um, but they've estimated that if they rolled out a fleet of those globally, they could actually power the whole world using used nuclear wastes for 200 years. So like the technology is there. We just have to, the willpower to build it. Again, I don't think the prism is actually being advanced right now, uh, but they did a lot of work to uh, support it. But these advanced, uh, these advanced reactors, you know, they're smaller, so we can actually build them at a factory and then just like transport them to the site and install them. So that takes a lot of the construction costs down. Um, they can also be turned on and off more quickly or like to, you know, in, in relation to what the grid actually needs. Uh, existing nuclear usually operates for nine to 18 months nonstop. And then we take them offline to uh, do maintenance. So, you know, that's the problem with like uh, nuclear. And it's when people say it's not competitive, you know, it's because you have to operate for 18 months and there's really no, you know, have an option. So when like the wind is blowing in October and it's like a really great year for wind and you have a nuclear power plant in that region, you might be paying people to take your electricity. Uh, that has happened in certain parts of the country. Uh, so these big aging, old, massive facilities just aren't really, you know, weren't designed with, you know, the realities of 2020 and 30 in mind. So advanced nuclear has a lot of potential, I think. Um, and also some of those have, did I say passive safety systems? So they can uh, be- No. So they, that's no. the last cool feature I'll talk about for that, but they have, um, um, meaning like the, the architecture of the reactors um, means that if, if something went wrong, and the process went off the rails, you wouldn't actually need a human operator uh, to shut it down. It would just shut itself down. So a lot of these are, I don't want to say meltdown proof, but it's pretty close. So uh, the risk of disasters, which is already very, very low for any nuclear power plant are almost non-existent for some of these uh, newer reactors. And because they're so small, you can actually build them uh, on existing nuclear power sites. So that would take a lot of the regulatory and siting and permitting processes uh, off the table, right? So we might retire older nuclear facilities and then just replace them with the same location uh, with some smaller designs. So that's kind of cool. And then with geothermal, there's actually a newer technology. It's still being advanced, uh, also supported by the Department of Energy. And no one really talks about it, but it's called Enhanced Geothermal Systems, EGS. Um, so geothermal today, you need uh, conditions. What do you need? You need? You need heat, you need rocks, and I think you need pressure or fluid or something. So you need like three different metrics to make geothermal work. That's why it's very limited and it's mostly out in the West, right? There's some places in California that use it um, and other parts like in that region, right? Nevada and Arizona, maybe further North a little bit. Um, but enhanced geothermal systems, actually you only need uh, one of those um, conditions and you can engineer the other two into the system. So it's actually based on the same technology we use for fracking. So we can drill holes um, you know, engineer the permeability of the rock and, and the pressure systems there and actually engineer in geothermal. So we can use this to make geothermal viable in much greater parts of the country. It's pretty much all over the country, right? Uh, not quite that way, but the, uh, I forget what it is, maybe the U.S. Geological Survey, was that USGS? Um, they've estimated that maybe there's between 100 gigawatts and 500 gigawatts of enhanced geothermal uh, systems potential in the United States. So that could actually supply about maybe, you know, 20% of the total country's energy use. Um, we could get geothermal in much broader parts of the country from coast to coast. Um, so that's kind of interesting. No one's really talking about it, but again, that's maybe out in the 2030s timeframe, uh, but we could start to see that. And that's, you know, uh, barring the exact same technology we use from fracking. It is important to know uh, geothermal does emit a small amount of carbon dioxide. 
Um, I think it's one-tenth of that of natural gas. But uh, so it's not completely clean energy, but it's a very low, low, low carbon source. So. All right. Well, we have plenty more questions, but we're going to hit a quick ad break uh, before we get to the second half. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. Okay, welcome back in. Uh, I have a quick question just to follow off that first discussion. What's What's the fastest way to accelerate that transition? Uh, is it financial incentives from the government, like what we're seeing with like uh, subsidies or tax credits? Is it uh, credits for using it? I know like big tech has signed on as a customer for some of this more clean energy consumption. What's like, uh, how do you get people to pour money into this? Yeah, so to accelerate, it's already well underway. And that's because the economics are coming down uh, or, you know, coming down the cost curve. The economics are more viable. To accelerate it, I think uh, some of the lower hanging fruit would be extending tax credits. So extending the PTC and the ITC for wind and solar, um, maybe even extending it or adding new ones for specific other components, right? Like energy storage uh, or, again, transmission. There's actually some talk of just consolidating it. So instead of having it be based on energy source, such as, hey, if it's clean energy, what is, you know, here's a tax credit. Because it does get annoying. Like, um, you know, well, the tax credit for batteries expires next October. And then the one for solar phases out next June. And the, it's, it's very confusing and hard to keep track of. Um, so extending tax credits, however they want to do that, obviously, um, would just make a ton of sense for encouraging more investment. Um, Big corporate purchases can help some projects be more economically viable. So uh, I think it's Amazon when they go around and, and buy power purchase agreements, um, they'll go talk to projects that wouldn't be built unless Amazon um, agreed to buy the power. Uh, so they're trying to help, you know, it's not just like, Hey, this is in New Mexico. It's going to be the lowest cost energy source in the world for solar. Amazon's not interested in that. It wants to go and support projects that uh, wouldn't exist without Amazon's help. So there's some examples of like, uh, larger corporations may be stepping in and providing some of the uh, using some of the financial burdens for some of these projects. And that can help to accelerate uh, to some extent. Um, and then, you know, for transportation, I mean, uh, I don't know if it exists still. There used to be a tax credit for uh, buying an electric vehicle. Um, that's kind of a no brainer to bring that back if it has phased out or maybe even juicing it a little bit to offset some of the costs or just really make it uh, easy for consumers if they're buying their next vehicle, it's just gonna be an electric vehicle. And again, there's still some things we need to do like supporting charging infrastructure. Some of that has to be publicly owned. Some of that's gonna be privately owned. So figuring out the details there and some of the newer business models or arrangements. Um, 
So there's still some work to do on that front as well. And then, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's important to point out as well, like electric utilities are already incentivized to use renewable energy, right? So there's an electric utility called XL Energy and they have this program called Steel for Fuel. And that means that they're replacing coal-fired power plants with onshore wind. And onshore wind is cheaper than coal for a lot of reasons, right? And this is true for, uh, increasingly true for utility-scale solar. When you build, you know, a wind farm or a solar farm, all the costs are up front for the most part in building the thing. There's some maintenance and things like that in operations, but there's no fuel expense, right? The sun shines and the wind blows, you're good. Um, that's much different from thermal power plants. You have to constantly buy fuel for decades and decades and decades. So it doesn't matter like, you know, the price of coal or the price of natural gas, uh, doesn't matter if you buy wind and solar. So you can actually pass on those savings to your customers. Uh, and it also makes pro um, the economics of projects better. So in certain regions, again, it just, and this is why we're seeing so much investment. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that stat about, you know, how many gigawatts of wind and solar um, we're expected to build as a country for the next, you know, eight years. Um, you know, it's because the, the, there's nothing better than wind and solar. The economics are just obviously better. Um, so there's already a lot of incentive for these projects to be built. Um, it's just navigating all those other obstacles like transmission and um, where can you build it, right? Some people don't want to live next to that or uh, you have to route it through towns. It's, it's, it's a little more complicated in 2020 to have these massive uh, infrastructure projects, but... Yeah. So does that mean in general for these electric utilities, whether it be Excel, others, or I guess Berkshire Hathaway Energy is a big one now, oh, that's a, that's a subsidiary. And they've mentioned that they're going to be investing tens of billions into this stuff over the next decade. Does that mean their profit margins will rise? And then outside of utilities, are there any industries or areas that look promising from an investment perspective? What was that last part again? I'm sorry. Do, are there any areas outside of utilities that look promising from a, you know, investment perspective? Okay. Um, so yeah, when you're investing in renewable energy, so if you're an uh, electric utility, um, you're highly regulated. Like most utilities, not just in electric utilities uh, in the United States are, are regulated, fully regulated. So I think that caps the profits you can actually make, right. but it does lower your fuel expenses. Uh, and other expenses for maintenance, right? Um, so you do end up making more money for the same uh, investment. So um, everything is determined by something called the rate base when you're an electric utility, right? Uh, so that takes, um, there's a, a legally mandated like uh, rate of return on your investments uh, and you multiply that percentage by your rate base um, so your rate base is all of the utility related assets. These are things like the power facilities, the transmission lines, uh, you know, the distribution lines. So that's like getting it to people's homes and businesses. Um, and eventually it might even include like electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Right. Um, and then you add to that something called qualified expenses. So the most important number in that calculation, and that determines how much money you can make as an electric utility. Right. So that's how we set like, you know, how much you and I pay uh, per month to our electric, you know, on electric bills. It's determined by that calculation. And that's a little oversimplified, but that's kind of the gist of it. So the most important part of that calculation is the rate base. 
So again, companies are incentivized to invest in their rate base, build more transmission, build more solar, build more wind, because uh, that's how you juice that number, right? And this is like tens of billions of dollars large uh, in assets for these companies. Um, so even if that uh, guaranteed rate of return doesn't increase, you know, you still can offset that with tax credits, right? So that helps you be more profitable. And that other number you add to it, the qualified expenses, well, if you're spending less on fuel and maintenance, um, then you get to collect the most, like the rest of that, right? Uh, so that number or that calculation is uh, used to determine uh, what companies can make. So uh, just from that, there are limits on the profits that electric utilities can make because they're highly regulated. Um, but it does make a lot of economic sense to, um, if you if you can reduce the right expenses, you, you are more profitable, you do have more cash flow, and then you can turn around and invest that and grow your rate base even more. Uh, so like over years, you're just gonna keep growing and growing and growing. Uh, and the, the the rich get richer, the big get bigger when it comes to electric utilities. Insofar as outside of uh, electric utilities, yeah, there's way more exciting investment opportunities than electric utilities. Those are kind of boring, right? I mean, geez. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, batteries, electric vehicles, um, some of the software companies like STEM Inc. is one of the more popular stocks, I think, right now in, in the industry. So they make like, uh, they use artificial intelligence uh, to help uh, manage um you know, energy loads and, and distribution from uh, battery projects, right? Um, so you can like subscribe to their software and they'll help optimize your system for your house or your business or whatever it might be. Um, there's some limitations to their business model because they mostly just apply what they do on top of the batteries, um, which mostly come from Tesla. And Tesla also offers the same energy management services. And, you know, I wouldn't want to bet against Tesla. So if, uh, you know, and it's like, I don't remember the number, but it's a significant amount of STEM's overall business uh, is built on top of Tesla batteries. So uh, if Tesla or its customers are like, screw this, we're just going to, you know, stay in the Tesla ecosystem, STEM's going to be uh, not in a good position there. Um, and then, of course, there's other exciting things, right? Like solid state batteries, obviously the future, right? Um, I studied these in grad school when I was, uh, you know, at Carnegie Mellon and um, in, 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 when it comes to electric uh, electrochemistry and energy storage, uh, you know, there's some jokes among material scientists because there's a, a lot of, I don't know, six different metrics you have to optimize when you're designing a battery cell. And you might have a chemistry or a design that just blows like five of those six metrics out of the water. But then that sixth metric is just, it makes it like completely non-viable. So you're like, damn it, again, thwarted. Um, so this has really been the plight of material scientists and energy storage for, for decades. Solid state batteries are almost like too good to be true. They just uh, are way better on a lot of different metrics. And uh, I expect that, you know, uh, in the back half of this decade, um, we'll start to see those enter the market and be commercially viable. Um, and that makes, so like they just have um, much higher capacities for a smaller footprint. So there's more density. Um, so you can have maybe a battery that's half the size, but it has like double the capacity. So that makes a lot of sense for mobile applications, right? Whether that's like phones and laptops or other devices such as that, or right, quite truly mobile applications like vehicles. Um, you know, you could have a vehicle that's powered by solid state batteries and has a thousand mile range. Like that's completely uh, feasible. And also has fast charging capabilities due to the architecture and the materials used. Um, so charging a vehicle, you know, 10 years from now uh, that has solid state batteries might take you about the same amount of time as filling up a gas powered car today. 
Uh, so instead of like hours and hours, you have to do it overnight. Uh, and if you forget to plug it in, you can't go to work, which maybe isn't such a bad thing. Um, you know, uh, in the future, you can just charge it up in, in minutes, right? So uh, pretty big advantage for solid state batteries. So we've seen companies like, you know, QuantumScape uh, was one of the big ones that came public recently. Uh, there's another one going public. I can't remember the name, uh, another solid state battery player. So there's a lot of excitement there. But again, I think you have to be realistic about how early this is. Um, so Quantum State, QuantumScape is public, but it's not going to have meaningful revenue until maybe 2026 or 2027. So uh, I support long-term investing and encourage people to do that as well. But uh, that's not what I mean. I don't mean wait six years for a company to have any revenue at all, really. Um, that can be dangerous. Projects can get delayed. Uh, and it's important to remember as well, for energy storage, I mean, it really is kind of a commodity, right? It's such an important component um, for all of these these uh, industries, right? And then electric vehicles. Um, but there's going to be a lot of different manufacturers of batteries. There's going to be a lot of different solid state battery manufacturers. Today, we don't even know what chemistries or designs might be optimal. Um, you know, it might be possible that QuantumScape doesn't have the best design uh, or there's companies that at least match it, right? There's a ton of investment here. Um, all the major automakers are really invested in, um, you know, different companies or different technologies or even developing their own. Uh, other, you know, traditional battery manufacturers are, are investing in it, new startups. Uh, there's still new research going on at universities that will probably become startups. Um, you know, Dyson, you guys know Dyson, like uh, in the UK, they make like vacuums and things like that. Right. Yeah, like they're, they're, they're researching solid state batteries, right? So like everybody's in on this. Um, so it's possible that in the future, it's just like a commodity product. Everyone does it. And that maybe there's no obvious investing opportunity. I would say maybe there's some parallels to like solar panels, right? Solar panels are important, but it's been very hard to make money investing in, uh, you know, solar stocks for, you know, solar panel manufacturers really. Um, so it's, it's one of those examples. It's very important, but maybe there's no investment opportunity there. Um, so. Uh, so I have like a follow-up question that might be a little tough to answer, but a lot of these, uh, a lot of the excitement has given rise to what some might call crazy valuations. So I think, uh, or even in sometimes bad behavior, you think like Nicola, uh, or who's the one that just went Lordstown. Do you think that coming public early prior to having a viable product is a net positive since these companies get access to capital and maybe have longer life cycles? Or do you think it's a net negative because it creates a lot of bad behavior? Well, I think, I hope bad behavior is more of a, uh, uh, a smaller component of all that, right? Hopefully most companies aren't doing unethical things. Um, But that is a good example of, um, you know, you, you, it's hard if you, if you don't understand like all of the challenges and the opportunities um, you can get burned, right? If you're just focusing on the opportunities and you know, Nicola sounds really good, right? Or it did, right? Whatever, a year ago. Um, I mean, how could you lose, right? Um, You know, they have trucks and cool investor presentations and look how awesome it is. It's the future. And if you don't understand the hurdles there, the limitations of fuel cell technology or hydrogen, then, you know, you could end up, you know, holding onto a a Nikola, right? Um, Lordstown Motors, another good one, right? No operating history. Um, Of of course, they bought that facility in Ohio, I think, right? Um, 
from General Motors or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, like they just, they couldn't get it together. And, you know, obviously maybe the management had some things going on there that weren't so great. Um, but yeah, so you have to be careful investing in the space and you, do, you just be realistic, right? I, I tell people when they're investing in biotech, there's a lot of hype, right? Every, every, every biotech convention is going to change the world. Every battery and all this and hydrogen is going to change the world. And uh, the realities are often a little more, uh, more nuanced and complicated. So um, be realistic. You know, this isn't, uh, this isn't the lottery. I know it's been, it's been like stupidly easy in the last year to be an investor, right? I mean, almost everything goes up. Everyone's the genius. And eventually that's not going to happen anymore. Like um, companies that can't commercialize their technologies, you know, aren't going to be around much longer. Right. Um, so just cause it sounds good, doesn't mean it's going to be a great business. And conversely, uh, even great technology doesn't always become a good business. Um, sometimes industry leading technology just can't be commercialized or the price isn't right for the market. Um, so you can have like best in class technology and it just isn't a good business and then you can't really invest in that. So and you know what you brought up there actually is a good example. Like hydrogen, to me, I don't, I don't really understand why there's so much excitement around hydrogen. I mean, I get it, but I think there's too, way too many technical hurdles for hydrogen to overcome. So I know there's like governments and major companies investing in hydrogen, or at least talking about it. Um, so it sounds like it's going to be a thing, right? It's this wondrous molecule, and we can use it to power vehicles and transportation. And maybe we can store excess solar or wind power uh, for months and months at a time, you know, and, and preserve the energy potential or make it even more valuable for renewable energy. And the realities are, um, it's way more complicated, right? Like hydrogen is actually a pretty terrible fuel. Um, you have to compress it, whether it's through pressure or super freezing, uh, in order to get it high enough density to make it viable or to store it, right? So it's not like a gas tank. Uh, underneath uh, your gas station that you go to, um, or just sitting underground and you can just store uh, like tens of thousands of gallons at a time. Um, storing it requires a, a tremendous cost because you have to freeze it or pressurize it. That's not cheap or expensive or uh, cheap or easy, you know? So it's like a constant maintenance cost. If you're just going to store hydrogen, forget using it. Um, one of the problems again with like Nikola or some other companies, um, fuel cells are actually pretty brittle still. So the economics might look great, if you're, you know, an 18 wheeler uh, and you want to use hydrogen, but if you have to replace your fuel cell stacks every, you know, 20,000, 30,000 miles, that's a very expensive and important part of your vehicle, then the lifetime economics aren't so great. Uh, another issue is you have to use your main competitor as your primary input. So you have to use renewable energy. Well, I mean, that's the idea of green hydrogen anyway. You're using renewable energy to make hydrogen um, where we could just use renewable energy, <laughs> right? So you're like, that's not a great position to be in, I don't think. Um, and also like, again, on paper, these things sound really good. We're gonna use excess solar energy. I'm sorry, is there, do we have an excess of renewable energy right now in this country, you know? Um, yeah. I think we have enough uh, other things to replace before we start knocking out like hydrogen things. So I think the future of transportation is obviously electric. I don't think hydrogen has a great role to play there. There's also limitations like, Transporta transporting hydrogen. I said storing it. So that's a, a main limitation. Uh, it's the same for vehicles, right? You would have to have some crazy storage tank on your vehicle uh, in order just to store hydrogen if you're using it for like a car or a truck. Um, but there's also like, if we made this in the desert in a solar facility, how are you going to get it out of the desert? You can't actually transport hydrogen in steel pipelines. 
because there's something called hydrogen embrittlement. Uh, so it just causes weakness and deterioration in the materials over time, the steel, uh, and eventually your pipeline is going to explode. Um, so we've had in, you know, in the early, uh, in the middle of the last century, we had, you know, airplanes would fall out of the sky and power plants would blow up and pipelines would blow up because of hydrogen embrittlement. So we understand that problem pretty well. And you actually can't transport hydrogen through pipelines and very large volumes because of that. So you'd have to build a completely new infrastructure all over the country just to get hydrogen anywhere. Similarly, you can't actually use like, if we're going to use it to replace natural gas, well, we have to go and redesign all of our stoves and all of our furnaces and turbines because um, just there's, there's different, uh, you know, thermodynamic and, and chemical properties of, uh, of hydrogen compared to methane. Um, so we'd have to go and redesign and replace all of this infrastructure just to use hydrogen, which isn't even a good fuel to begin with. So there's a lot of hype around this, right? Like plug power and fuel cell uh, energy and a couple others, right? Um, and they, it sounds good. It looks good on paper, but I think the destiny of hydrogen is still going to be like forklifts, you know, which is what it kind of currently does. And all these projects, even though there's announcements of intention to invest in hydrogen, most of it's a memorandums of understanding or like some really early uh, uh, development partnership. So it's not a commercial stage partnership for the most part. Um, so I think you have to be careful when it comes to, to hydrogen. And some of those valuations got crazy, right? What did, what yeah. did plug power get up to earlier this year? It was like, like some tens of billions of dollars. It was a uh, Nikola was 50. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just, uh, be, be careful. Yeah. It seems like investing in a nuclear fusion company. It's like, we got a lot of <laughs> progress. This might be, you know, it might never be viable, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, Ryan, do we want to wrap up or do you have anything else? Let's wrap up. All right. Yeah. Sure. First one. Okay. Yeah. What's uh? we may have asked you these before actually, but if you have a different one, what is one financial saying that you disagree with? So this, this sounds counterintuitive, but uh, I kind of hate when, you know, let's say on like social media, right. Somebody will have like a 10 tweet tweet storm and they'll maybe like talk about a stock or pump it up. And then at the end, they just throw it in there. They'll say, as always, do your due diligence. And I hate when people say, do your due diligence. Because first, it's like, yeah, no kidding, right? Obviously, do your, do your own research. But most importantly, I think most people don't actually, aren't equipped with the tools to do your own due diligence. Um, you know, a lot of people don't understand um, a lot of the nuance of like biotech or, or anything, or uh, renewable energy, right? Like batteries and things, right? So if you can't understand the limitations and the challenges and you're only investing on the opportunities, you're going to be biased. You're probably not going to have a very successful track record. Um, so it's okay. Like you can have a different approach. You can do a bottom. I do a bottom up approach to investing. So I try to understand all the nitty gritties and then just invest in like the best one or two opportunities in each little uh, part of the market I'm looking into. You can also do top down where you're just like, batteries are cool. They're the future. I don't know anything. I'm just going to buy you know, a basket of, of battery stocks and that's okay. Um, but I, I hate when people say do your due diligence because, you know, most people just have degrees from Google university and that's not really, uh, that's not going to hack it. So. <laughs> right. Right. No, which that leads, makes sense. I was going to say, which leads right into our disclosure. This is not advice Do your own due diligence. <laughs> yeah. We have to, we have to, uh, we have to. Perfect. Stick. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Last one. What is one piece of advice you have for anyone considering a career in investing and maybe it's for anyone looking in highly technical areas 
like clean energy or biotech or other things like that. Oh man. I don't know if I'm the one to give career advice. No, uh, I guess, you know, this is probably true for, for anything, not just finance, but, um, you know, you always want to ask yourself, uh, how do you add value? Right. So I didn't, I didn't start off thinking I was going to work in finance. Right. I didn't like, I wasn't like, you know, 18 years old and thought this would be what I was doing when I'm, you know, 30 years old now. So where do you add value? Right. Um, so I have a couple of engineering degrees and, um, sure. A lot of people like go work on wall street with engineering degrees. Um, but you know, I think that where I add value is like, I kind of understand more at least of the details of some of these things. Um, so I can maybe talk a little bit more intelligently about some of these opportunities. I'm not just like chasing momentum or what sounds cool. Like I can point out more of the limitations. So that's made me more objective as an analyst, as a writer, as an investor, um, so that's why I'm always careful to say challenges and opportunities. I've said it maybe a dozen times already. Um, so where do you add value, right? Like, and that's going to be different for your upbringing, your worldview, your education, your experiences, whatever it is, but, uh, find a way where you're, you're, you're doing something different, you know? Okay. And, uh, for anyone that wants to find you, get a hold of you, what's the best place? Don't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, on Twitter, I'm, uh, at the number seven. Max Chatsko and I have two X's in my name because my parents couldn't spell. So uh, if you just go to at seven investing, you'll see me there somewhere. I'm sure. So. All right. And, and then as always, we got to say sign up with seven investing code CCM, help all of us out, <laughs> add a great service uh, to your uh, investing research process. All right. Thank you, Max. Hey, thanks for having me guys. Cox panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Okay, welcome back in. Thank you again to Max Chatsko. I'll say it again, just because he is at 7investing, use our code CCM, get $10 off. <laughs> Ryan, I mean, you can hear it in the interview. I mean, if you're impressed by him, there's no reason to not go to the service, but enough on that. Ryan, do you want to introduce your first story of the week? Yeah, so there was, kind of, there was some news this week around Peter Thiel, who, uh, I mean, he's not the newsiest guy. He kind of, typically, some of the stuff he does is sort of in private, but ProPublica released a piece about him stating that he's exploiting the American tax system or basically using a tax haven that is the Roth IRA. Um, and I, I thought it was, I, I didn't like the article, but some people might have different opinions on it. Uh, and so ProPublica, if you're not familiar, is an investigative journalism firm. Uh, and they try to basically oust big public figures. They try to do these uncoverings like, oh, look, we got him but this was less of a gotcha article and more of like a, wow, that's really good returns. Anyway, so I'll get to the bulk of the article. So the subtitle stated Lord of the Roths, how tech mogul, mogul Peter Thiel turned a retirement account for the middle class into a $5 billion tax-free piggy bank, which could be a finance book that I would buy. Yeah. Like I would, that's, <laughs> that would sell. Hey, we'll, um, we'll get to it. He is a bit aggressive with his tactics, uh, you know, they might not be 
uh, to the letter of the law exactly. But ProPublica, you know, they got to get the clicks going. They got to get the clickbaits on there. Yeah, and so he. it also goes on to say, over the last 20 years, Teal has quietly turned his Roth IRA, a humdrum retirement vehicle intended to spur Americans to save for their golden years into a gargantuan tax-exempt piggy bank. And so for anyone that's unfamiliar with how the Roth IRA works or what it is, uh, it was established thanks to William Roth Jr. I think he's a Republican from, uh, gosh, I'm blanking on what state, maybe Vermont, Delaware. Um, and in 1997, that's when he basically established it or helped establish it. And it was intended to help working Americans save for retirement tax-free. Uh, and that the contributions now are capped at $6,000 a year at the time it was 2000 a year at the start. So, uh, and you had to be below a certain threshold. I think it was $110,000 a year, maybe 120 for couples uh, or else you couldn't contribute to it. But this was at the time where Peter Thiel was founding PayPal. And we'll get into this in a little bit. 10 years later, Congress allowed everyone to shift money from traditional IRAs to, or some a portion of their money from traditional IRAs to Roth IRAs for a one-time tax. A lot of people use that. I believe Peter Thiel did as well. But anyway, once the money is in the Roth, it's investable like other money. Uh, and I think a lot of people hear Roth IRA and they think index funds like instantly because it, it's just like the non-risky money. But you can invest that money in pure stocks, public equities. If you structure it right, you can, as we'll see, uh, invest it in private uh, enterprises as well. Um, so anyways, the gripe that ProPublica appears to have with Peter Thiel is that he was able to make an investment in a private company early on with that Roth money, which a lot of typical investors don't have access to. You technically do, uh, but it takes legal structuring that costs money, uh, and Peter Thiel had that money. Um, but Thiel's income in 1999, when he was starting PayPal, was under the threshold. So he was able to qualify for the Roth contributions because as the, I don't know if he's the CEO or what his title was, but he was only getting paid in salary, 70000 or something like that a year. Uh, and so he bought his PayPal founder shares through his Roth IRA for $1,700. Keep in mind, this is literally basically a startup at the time. The yeah. following months, they got a lot of money uh, from VCs and whatnot. But I, I think believe hey, the, just to just to be clear, I think I saw that on his the old S one. They had to disclose that they did sell him the stock or like give him that whatever ownership stake for significantly less than what they were appraising it for at the time. But you know, you're right. It, it was a startup, like a super early stage. Yeah, and there is, I guess some of the cash that they got from VCs indicated that it was worth more than what he bought it for, but it's almost like who's to say what the true value is. Cause it's not to like, you're not seeing the marketable security. Yeah. Just cause a VC says it or whatever. I'm not sure idea. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I believe he also did it through, he put his Roth IRA into a trust, which helps him. I believe that's the only way to become a limited partner in smaller private deals or for venture capital. So stuff like that. I don't think you can do it directly within a Roth. So that was kind of one of the gray areas that be, or one of the things that people didn't like or ProPublica didn't like. Anyway, uh, within a year, that $1,700 had jumped to 3.8 million. And then obviously they sold to eBay. So he had even more money after that. And he continued to make his, use that money in his Roth without being taxed on it uh, to do uh, more private investments. So he, that included Palantir and Facebook. 
and now the account is worth more than $5 billion. Uh, they're all, they also tried to sort of oust several other investors who have done tremendously well through their Roth IRAs, uh, including Ted Weschler, who's sort of a Buffett uh, right-hand man, I guess, disciple. He's kind the, of. Yeah, he, he's part of the two protege stock stock pickers, him and, him and Todd Combs. And uh, anyway, he compounded his account by 35% for 30 years, which is one of the most impeccable track records uh, I've come across or I've seen. And I think it helps being that you can sell and reinvest without taking cap gains tax on that um, or income tax, I guess. Um, but he also tried to, they also tried to oust Buffett who had 20 million in the, his Roth. Oh, I love I that stuff. Like, I feel like he's got to be hard to oust because all his money is just tied to Berkshire. I mean, the last three decades, he's basically said, tax me more, take my money. I'm doing, I pay that we pay the most taxes in America. I mean, like, yeah, you could say, you know, whatever. He's kind of a greedy guy and he's hoarding all his cash and not giving it away until he dies, you know, which may be like, oh, we're going to wait three decades until you give this money away. But I mean, to try to dunk on Buffett is tough. And then the dunk on Ted here is just ridiculous. I mean, there's really nothing you can say. The guy, he did it like the right way, like anyone else would do it. He just added money. He took that transfer from the, the 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 regular to the Roth, which is what in like 2011. He did basically what anyone else could do, but he's just so much better at investing than everyone. Yeah. But the, the Peter Thiel stuff makes sense. I mean, that is a bit shady, and it wasn't like he was just using a Roth IRA like everyone else. He just kind of stuffed it with these. Um, I wouldn't say Found can't miss investments, but the ones that really ended up working over the long haul. Yeah, but even then, like let's say someone were able to structure it that way. That doesn't mean they'd be willing to stake their investments all on Facebook or all on PayPal. Like there's still true. You like, there's still investing skill involved. Um, and it's not like, uh, obviously there's the gray area with the, the value of his shares, but he read the rules like yeah. they, he didn't, he didn't break the rules. Yeah, it's true. He wasn't doing illegal. He, they found a loophole. Maybe this will expose that that loophole should be closed. Uh, and that would be great. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, because yeah. you know, I don't think it was, it's seems that I wouldn't call it ethical, but it doesn't, it seems like he shouldn't be allowed to do that if for what the spirit of what a Roth IRA is supposed to be. But with Ted, I mean, that was just bragging for him. And his yeah. response was like, I don't know what to say, guys. I'm just, I got, I may have gotten a little lucky. It's compounded ridiculously. I don't know. It, you can I mean, do it too. <laughs> this totally, it had to backfire on ProPublica because it just ended up being free marketing for Ted. We I would launch a fund if I were Ted Weschler tomorrow. <laughs> well, he's basically managing, I think, probably like $10 billion at Berkshire. Uh, he's going to take yeah. over the investment portfolio. And you can see why Buffett stole him from wherever he was. I don't know the history of Ted, but people have kind of been like, oh, are Todd and Ted really equipped to take over? I think this, you know, shows that, you know, maybe the track record won't be that good because Berkshire is so large, but they got a, some good investing minds over there. I think Buffett knows uh, what he's doing with sending, sending up, uh, you know, Berkshire for after he dies. Yeah. I guess, does, the, does this make ProPublica look bad? Like, did you think this kind of backfired on them? Uh, in the end, well, 
you know, they've been, they already did that one on, they were trying to dunk on Buffett for not paying taxes on unrealized gains. And it's really just, it's a, whatever they call it, the Rorschach test where the people that are already like, guys, this isn't really a story. It's just how people do this. That's like the FinTwit people, the finance people kind of like us. We're like, yeah, I mean, if you don't know the rules, like that might seem weird, but just follow the rules and you can take advantage of it too. And then there's a lot of other people that, you know, maybe the headline can make you angry if you're not, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I think they're going to do fine with 90% of the population or or I don't know how big of the population would, no matter what is going to agree with them just because the people are rich, but that gets into more of a political standpoint, stuff like that. I, I mean, I lost respect for them because it seems like they don't necessarily understand what's going on, but that's fine. And I think that Peter Thiel reporting was still pretty interesting either way. However, they were trying to frame it. Yeah, it was good, I guess, investigating on their part. But when I was reading through this, my biggest takeaway was like, man, I really need to start maxing out my Roth contributions. Like it was not, it was not, wow, screw the system. Like (laughs) (laughs) you could be more active in the Roth too. That's kind of something that, you know, it, yeah, or not, I, I got just a bunch of uh, – mine's small right now too. I just got a bunch of shares of Boston Omaha. I'm, I'm trying to just let that ride forever. But you can be more active and you don't get penalized for it, which is something if you're ever going to want to scratch that itch, if you love, you know – That's the place to do it. Yeah, I mean it's the best place for sure to do it. And 6000 a year is huge for most people, you know, especially like us. Yeah. All right. What's your story? Okay, this one, you know, there, there wasn't any big stories that really we could talk about this week. So I went through some IPOs that I've been seeing, and it feels a bit like February again. The SPACs and IPOs have become roaring back. I mean, there was like that six-week period, right, in April, May, when everything kind of paused, and they're like, oh, are we going into a downturn? And then uh, for some reason, the last month or so, we have gone back to, I don't know if I want to call it excess, but feels hot in the market is probably a good way to describe it. So here are some examples. Mr. Carwash went public last week, market cap of $6 billion. Uh, for reference, 719 page S1. I do not know why you would need that many pages. Whenever I see something that's like a, at least like a 300 page S1 or a 300 page 20F or 10K, doesn't that kind of you know, what are they hiding? Yeah. I'm like, what are they hiding here? Unless it's like a bank or something. Or or like a 100 pages of uh, whatchamacallit, things that can go wrong. But no, it's risk factors. Yes. Risk factors. Yeah. Um, So for reference, they had 60 million in net income. I think they have like 300 and some car washes, 40 million in free cash flow. Ah. I don't know what's going on here. Uh, Maybe it's, maybe they're going to get to uh, 2000 car wash car washes over the uh over the next few years but I, how many car know. washes do they have it's like 300 some that's what yeah mm. so the value per car wash is huge i mean maybe people should be instead of buying self-storage units they should be buying car washes for what the market's valuing this at yeah some of these ipo prices are they've been so absurd but I mean, you're looking at a profit multiple. You got to go to sales multiple. Uh, <laughs> I think they have low margins because of the. You got to look at the TAM multiple. Oh my god! The 
what's weird though is like who's owning this and it's like oh well it's just the insiders and it's kind of a weird game you play over the over the lockup period where everyone's like yeah that looks kind of ridiculous all right we can't short it we don't want to short it because of the low float all right i guess we're just gonna let it be for the you know like maybe some schmuck will buy it i don't know it's kind of weird maybe it'll turn into a meme stock yeah you know it's funny a lot of like the ipos feel like they've really the stock has actually tracked like the lockup like the lockup has really mattered yeah because people are liquidating and we've seen these things come back down to earth as soon as that lockup hits or even before people are like selling it preemptively yeah it seems like that quote from uh, i've been thinking about that quote from bill Gurley. i think it was at the Sone conference where he's like if the banks are willing to take a fintech company at 30 times sales public we'll give you as many as you want and yeah. as long as that continues, it just, it seems like it's unsustainable, but we'll see. Other ones that are a little bit more ridiculous, a little more funny is the metals company. Now this was in the wall street journal, great article. Uh, it is an undersea mining prospector and it is going public in a spec being valued at $2.9 billion. And this is more than any mining company to go public with no revenue ever. So pretty hard, pretty high. And then even better, the metals company, which is mining the seafloor, is pitching itself as green to ESG funds. But biologists and oceanographers say the mining technique could cause, quote, irreversible damage to the ocean and say that they are trying to get this technology banned until 2030, at least. And then what's even better is CEO Gerard Barron carries you should look up a picture of this guy. It's very funny. He carries a metal lump from the seafloor in his pocket, and the company hired a marketing firm that is promoting him as, quote, the Australian Elon Musk. I'd say the golden age of fraud is continuing, and we're just going along just fine. Just more more fraudsters um, entering the market here. Yeah, it's I, – I we say this all the time, but the rise – like Elon's success has given way to a wave of do good for you. I'm putting that in air quotes, even though uh, obviously uh, Tesla's a real company and sells cars, but these are just essentially Ponzi schemes accessing ESG funds. Yeah. Yeah. And the, it, it incentivizes more, like look how well off Trevor Milton is like, he never did anything. Oh, yeah. This Gerard Barron guy is set for life. I mean, I bet he has whatever founder it's, warrants or whatever that shit is. It's frustrating. Yeah, it makes me want to <laughs> makes me want to fall in their footsteps. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> which is the problem. Have, if you have no shame and man, you could be rich right now. If you have no shame, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you know how to write an S1? Yeah. Yeah. If you know how to write, or you can hire someone to write one for you. This, I I don't even know. I mean, there's so, the thing is like, there's so much SPAC money sitting there. What is it? Like hundreds, hundred billion probably of just, you know, it's basically like a bank and it's just sitting there looking for deals. And the supply of deals of quality deals is basically zero now. And unless you're a company like Stripe who isn't, doesn't want to go public or something like that. The, you know, you they need to fill this uh, demand 
So the quality of these specs, I feel like it's just going to get lower and lower and lower. And this feels like the lowest quality you could ever have. Yeah, this is super low. And the Wall Street Journal wrote about this. Wall Street Journal wrote about this where SPACs are calling CEOs, asking them to please come public. Like that's a bad sign. Yeah. I mean, the SPAC, I mean, if the SPAC doesn't go through, you just kind of sit on money for two years, but you know, I mean, if the incentives though are to make the deal. So like it's setting it, the, the, uh, the recipe or sorry, no, no, the, the environment is setting these deals up to be just the lowest quality as possible. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, what's this next one that you have? Oh, this one is really funny. I, I know it's just from a foreign currency or foreign language translation here, but we have a new Chinese IPO and it's called Ding Dong Cayman Limited. Just went public. Chinese ADR, or it might have dro- just dropped its S1 or whatever you whatever you have for a foreign company, and is a leading on-demand e-commerce company in China. I mean, talk about a meme stock pitch right here. Everyone just wants to go long ding dong. Yeah, I, mean, that, I saw there was plenty of meme material on Twitter for this. I mean, if you ever think that Wall Street Bets is going to take some to the moon, now, obviously this is an investment advice. Don't do this, but... You know, we live in this age of this ridiculousness. I mean, someone could just go, yeah, we're all just going to be long ding dong. And then they just chuckle to themselves. <laughs> and then there was this, this is a real headline. It looks like from CNBC. Uh, ding dong, man bang and miss fresh take IPOs to the U.S. I mean, <laughs> I know it's just a language translation, but. Man, that's a tough headline. All right. In all seriousness, yeah. does this feel as frothy as it was in February? Maybe this is just an ongoing thing. Like maybe this has been happening. You just, now it gets more coverage because the meme stock craze. But Possible. I, I just always think like, does this have any bearings on the market at large? I got a feeling ding dong and scraping the ocean floor, access, trying to access ESG funds is very little at bearings on the market as a whole, but maybe ESG based ETFs, stuff like that could get affected. I don't know. It's, it's, that's definitely above our pay grade, but if, if, if tens, maybe not tens of billions, but if like 10 billion of these, I I bet this ding dong company might be legit. You know, it sounds like they're kind of like a DoorDash or something like that. But if 10 billion of basically, pre-revenue or kind of startup e stuff is coming to the public markets like each week eventually that will matter but you know if it's only about 10 billion a week i, I don't know it, it just seems like it's pockets of just stuff that is worth nothing yeah it might make for good i would love to be a long short manager or there's so much material to well, short. It seems, yeah, I, and this isn't something we do, but it seems like from the outside that the opportunity is like you would salivate, but it seems incredibly dangerous at the same time. Yeah, it's also true. All right, I'm going to head to my next story. So there was sort of a thread this week that came out from Joe Frankenfield from Saga Partners, uh, and I think Saga Partners put this together, but there were 50 companies with above a 20% uh, rate of return over the last 15 years. So 
uh, versus the S&P, which had about 8% rate of return. And so I'll go through the top 10 and I'll give their 15 year returns. So Netflix was number one, 38.7%, Booking Holdings, 35.5%, Amazon at number three, 34.2%. Number four, Align Technology, kind of a surprise over here, 31.6%. So they do like 3D digital scanners and they're also the creators of Invisalign. Oh, incredible Uh, moat if you've ever looked at that. I mean, it's expensive, but man, incredible moat there. Yeah, and then five is Transdime Group, 30.9%. Apple, 30.9%. Market Access was number seven. Uh, I hadn't heard of this, but it's an international electronic trading platform for institutional credit markets. They've basically done 30%. Uh, and then Boston Beer Company, actually 28.7%. They're the owner of like Sam Adams and Truly and a bunch of other uh, alcoholic beverages. Then number nine is Tyler Technologies, uh, grew 20, uh, IRR of 27.4%. That's basically public sector software. Must just be like an overlooked area and something that's super sticky, mm-hmm. like super sticky software. software. Uh, and then number 10 was Illumina, which is a genetics company. They did 27.2%. So this list did exclude all companies under $100 million market cap at the time which I think it's based off 2006. Uh, and of the 50 on the list, only three had a market cap above $10 billion. Seven had a market cap above $5 billion. So most of these companies were tiny or what you would deem to be a small cap. Now, I guess that's not really much of a shocker. Yeah, small uh, and also, cap, I mean, under five, five is kind of in the mid cap range, but it depends what your definition is. Yeah, and then only two of the 50 companies had a price to sales above 10 times. And they always were biotech that's stuff, got, right? That's like bio, you know, pre-revenue almost stuff, right? One of them was more pre-revenue. Another one had like 360 million in revenue, if I remember correctly. But it, uh, that goes to show like, I mean, maybe these aren't the returns you want. Maybe you don't want 40% like a Netflix, or maybe that's not what you're striving for, but it goes to show that paying any price might not work so well uh, mm-hmm. or won't get you those magnificent sort of uh, top top tier returns. Uh, and then the largest IRRs, I believe were byproducts of multiple expansion, like lots of multiple expansion. Those were sort of the biggest ones. So Netflix, for example, their sales multiple went from 1.6 times to 8.1 times today. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where you're gonna get a lot of, cause I mean, if you think about it, if you have sales double or sales, I guess, go up 20 times and you have multiple expansion of four times, you have a multiple or a hundred bagger. Yeah. Uh, uh, 25. That right? 25 yeah, that'd times. be 80. That'd be 80. But yeah, same. Right. Um, I guess. And then most of the companies on this list uh, achieve double digit sales growth annually. Some of these things were probably what you'd assume, but what were sort of the biggest takeaways for you? Yeah. I mean, everyone talks about this, but it puts it in numbers. If you want the home run stocks, you you know, I mean, multiple expansion, uh, small cap, long, small, smaller. Yeah. I mean, under 10, you know, whatever. It can't be a hundred billion. Uh, maybe not in this stage, but it, you know, it can't be, uh, ginormous. So smaller, uh, multiple expansion, like long runway for either reinvestment or just sales growth. Maybe it's asset light and they don't need that much reinvestment. And then you need, operating leverage, or maybe you just need two or three of these, but operating leverage or 
a change in the unit economics, I think can be really important because a lot of these on this list, I mean, Apple's, you know, margins went up and that was really just because the quality of the products went up and there was app stores, stuff like that. Amazon with AWS, Netflix is really easy to talk about because they went from the, you know, delivering of DVDs to now what they are today. The unit economics are a lot better. I think identifying a change in profitable profit margins or cash flow margins can be really, or predicting that can help, you know, that'll improve the returns on invested capital that can really help for long-term uh, winners. Yeah. And like the sales multiple expansion, isn't just a change in market sentiment. Like you said, that's probably a byproduct of the change in the unit economics, because now you're willing to pay more. It, the cash flow multiple might not have changed. I mean, obviously, I'm guessing when they had a billion dollars in sales, they weren't profitable, if I remember correctly. Uh, but the cash flow multiple might not change that much, whereas the sales multiple could. Yeah, or even the gross profit multiple might not go up right. as much as this, something like that. They could, I mean, the really the best businesses are ones that can grow gross profit at a faster rate than um, their sales. Sales. And can grow free cash flow at a, a brass faster growth than gross profit. And then they can buy back stock and return a lot of, you know, st- uh, cash to shareholders. I mean, you know, some of the big winners on this list have just really reinvested into their business like Netflix and Amazon. But a lot of them, I mean, that you see on here, I think um, one of them was Activision Blizzard. They pay, I, I bet it was, I think it was total return. So, you know, they paid a decent dividend and really like buying back stock can be a part of it too. So I don't know. There's a lot to take away, but in reality, I think the biggest one is if you're paying a high multiple for something, which we're, we're you know, we're fine. We, we do that sometimes. You know, you, you can't expect um, 20% IRR. Yeah. yeah. All right. What's your uh, new game here? Yeah. So this, I think this will be a fun game. I'm calling it taking stock. What do you think? Of that? I think that name's good. Yeah. Good, yeah. good name. Uh, so I'm going to throw out either a finance take or topic that people have, and then I'll set a price and then we're going to decide either buying it or selling it, which means shorting it versus how popular the idea or theme will be in the future. So essentially it ranges from zero to $100 and then $0 is basically equaled, never talked about in, in like two, three months or something like that. And a hundred dollars is, you know, every segment on CNBC, they're talking about this, all of Twitter. It's all anyone can talk about. Um, for example, you could do like value is dead. Um, and you could set the price of $40 and we could either go, you know, you could say, I'm buying that. Everyone's going to be talking about this or I'm shorting it. No one's going to be talking about that. Um, I'm stealing this from a sports podcast. If anyone listens to that, I know it's from a popular show. Uh, so I am just copying that, but doing it to finance. Does that make sense? And then yeah. so I'll throw out some ideas here. I understand the rules. Okay. First one, ARC investing liquidity crisis. I'm going to set the bidding at, I think it probably trades right now at $30 a share. Yeah, I haven't seen it talked about too much recently. Um, I don't know. I'd go slightly more. You're buying. I uh, yeah, I buy. Yeah, I, I'd say it'll go in and out. Obviously. Yeah. Well, so this is kind of just short-term trading. <laughs> There's no fundamental thesis here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
I'd say I'm buying two. You know, it was like at 100 in April and March, and we were a part of that. And it was definitely overblown, I think, looking back. But yeah. I, I, when the thing is, whenever you could see this happening over the next like three years, whenever the market is just going to take a tumble or high tech takes a tumble, people could be like, is ARK in trouble? Let's talk about this next on Fast Money, <laughs> you know? Yeah. All right. Uh, next one is housing a bubble. I'm going to set the bidding at, I'd say 55. It's getting talked about a lot right now. Yeah, it's less even. I would buy that because I'm not hearing the bubble talk as much as like the uh, problems of the housing market right now, like right. being a buyer, how hard it is. Um, I'm not really hearing as much bubble talk. And maybe the interest rates make it seem more affordable to everyone. But I don't know. I, I do hear a lot, like just housing is like the one market where it's always anecdotal. Yeah. And I'm hearing a lot of people like, oh, my house has, we just got an offer that's way above what we thought. And it's like, well, what are you going to do? Like if you yeah. sell it, you got to go out and then buy one that's worth way more than you want to pay. Yeah. It, it just, yeah. I think I'm definitely buying this because even if it is a bubble or not, everyone, if prices continue to rise just because of a supply and demand thing, it's going to be talked about on CNBC and Twitter and whatever all day. All day. No doubt. All right. This one, I got next one. This is a fun one. Dividing by the Fed balance sheet. I'm going to set the price at $20 a share. It's going down. Oh, it's going that, down. I'm buying this. That stopped months ago, or I guess it came out recently too. That should stop now. I Don't. The rationality of it, I don't think. Talk, talking about the Fed's balance sheet might go up, but <laughs> putting everything in terms of the Fed balance sheet needs to stop. Well, yeah, it needs to stop. But so you're shorting this. You think it's going to zero, dividing by the Fed balance sheet? Yes. I'm going to go along this one. We'll, 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 mark, we'll mark this down, see, see who's right. Um, uh, I, hope I think this never. is going to continue growing. It's an epidemic, but we'll All see. All right, next. Okay. Last one. The, all right, now this one I think is interesting. I'm going to say the deficit. I'm going to put it at $15 a share because no one has been talking about the deficit recently. Well, I'm, going like to go, the, I'm going to go, I'm buying. I'm definitely buying. Just America's debt? Yeah. Remember when that used to be just the story constantly? And the last like few months, it just kind of fell off the face of the earth. Everyone kind of got bored with it. I think I people think are just immune back. to it. I think people are immune to it. Bloomstrand talked about this where he's like, I've been calling on hyperinflation or like someone's got to pay for that deficit for 30 years and nothing's ever happened. So like, you think, what are you buying or selling the, the deficit? I think people are immune to it at this point. I so think you can't surpass what happened in 2020. Uh, I think that shock, like how much we spent and how much we were willing to spend has made everyone immune to like government spending. I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think it's going to reverse. I don't know why. It's just kind of something people love to talk about. But so you, you're going to short it. I'll short that. All right. Well, that's going to do it uh, for that segment. If anyone has any uh, feedback on that, let us know if that was bad or good, because I'll let us know if we want to continue it doing it a few times a year or something like that. Uh, but let's move on. You have nothing else. Let's wrap things up with Berkshire. 
on the move, uh, there was a plane in Omaha, the Hershey Company jet, uh, which reminded me of the college football coach plane analysts, you know, that are tracking flights. People do this with Elon Musk as well to see where his plane is going, uh, which if you become that guy, the, the plane tracking guy, no matter what it is, you're in too deep, I think. Um, uh, for sure. <laughs> whatever you're in, I just you have to look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself why you're tracking these planes. But uh, another note is that Buffett and Munger are having an extended TV interview this week, probably today when you're listening to this. So it could be perfect timing. Uh, Hershey feels like a classic Buffett purchase. And if you look at the stock price, it really is one that got away. The stock has performed phenomenally over the long term, almost a permanent part of a society, you think. I mean, there's kind of the, you know, the sugar and people don't like, a lot of people don't like sugar anymore, but, uh, you know, people keep buying it. Uh, looks like they do around $1.5 billion in free cash flow a year, and the buyout would probably be north of $40 billion, maybe $50. Uh, what are your thoughts here? Does this feel like a Buffett purchase? Uh, is this better than buying back stock? I don't know. I think at this point, Buffett's just buying his diet. He's gotten to the point where he's like, I'm just going to buy out the companies I digest. <laughs> yeah. um, and so maybe that's a like a long thesis for McDonald's <laughs> or Wendy's or something. But Dairy Queen, not Wendy's. I do think, I do think uh, yeah, they don't do TV interviews randomly. This is very, usually they have something to say. Um, yeah. So He's going to predict high yeah, inflation, just like Barry, Barry right? <laughs> yeah, definitely going to go out there and do that. Uh, but no, I, yeah, if he's talking to the public, he's got something to say. And Hershey seems like, yeah, a classic Berkshire company. I mean, I would like that. I wouldn't mind that. Yeah, I'm not investing in Berkshire, so I don't really care about the financial yeah. benefits. Um, True. It seems like buying back stock might be a better play, but they can obviously do both. The I feel like when he's calling like Charlie and he's like, you know, we only got a few meetings left. We could have Hershey and Reese's cups, which Hershey also owns, you know, at the meeting. And Charlie's like, well, I mean, it's 25 times cash flow, but I mean, now I'm in. <laughs> we need the candy yeah. to promote it. Um, all right. I look forward, I look forward to the TV interview. Yeah, always do. Usually, I mean, to be honest, they usually don't say anything. It's just kind of those platitudes they always say, but who knows? They could make some big announcements, stuff like that. It might be with that Gates stuff with the, the foundation. So, yeah, possibly. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, do you want me to wrap up or? Yeah, go ahead. All right. I've never done this on this show, but. Same. I got it. That's going to do it. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, we are not financial advisors, so anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are general partners at Arch Capital, so uh, clients may have positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.